would ask you to turn with me to the sixth chapter of the book of Romans as we continue to make progress through the book of Romans. And I know we preached on it years ago, but I think this time I'm having a sense in my own meditations upon the book and my own study of the book that there's a whole lot more unity here than I ever really appreciated. That um, this is not an epistle that's to be segmented into parts where Paul ends one theme and begins another. There's a continual theme that runs through the length and breadth of it. And, and the nature of the letter is, is that of a, a pastoral letter. Paul is engaged with the Romans, even though he didn't found the church, yet as someone who desperately desires to see uh, this church grow and thrive and, and be blessed of God, as it had been blessed in previous years. But he had known that there were these tensions within the congregation. And I made a mention last week that he doesn't take the Corinthian approach and lay it out into the open right at the first. He doesn't put his cards on the table. He just simply addresses the issues as aspects of what he says is the presentation of the gospel. He says, I long to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And he doesn't mean evangelism. He means preaching the gospel to the church. Preaching the gospel to the people of God. The people of God need the gospel. And they need the gospel because we just don't know all of the ramifications, implications, all the practical implications that the gospel has for us. And it's constantly as we proclaim the gospel and understand the gospel and and kind of peel in the different uh, layers of the onion, see that there's just more to to be seen than we've ever um, seen before. And we noted the constant mention of there's no distinction and Paul is, uh, has this uh, at the heart of what he's saying all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all have been received through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ all have been justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus and Paul addresses this, the blessings of the gospel this matter of being reconciled while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son how much more how much more being reconciled, we should be saved through his life. We have a, a living Savior who is able to help us to learn how to get along with one another, to learn how to live together as the people of God in a way that would bring honor and praise to his name, in a way that would ma- magnify humility in the hearts of God's people because we know we have nothing to boast in and in relationships of love that would abound among the people of God. Again, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We have a living Savior. We have the Spirit of God given to us. We have the blessings of access to God's presence. We have the peace peace with God through the Lord Jesus. We have all these things that have been given to us. Let's take our stand upon those things and live, live out of those things. Live in the light of those things. And then Paul draws this contrast. And again, we shouldn't be surprised. Because again, he's always been going back to the Old Testament. When he dealt with the question of being justified by faith, he says, even as Abraham uh, had nothing to boast in, he, the, the, towards God, uh, he, God declared he, was, uh, he believed God and he was reckoned to him for righteousness. He moved into David and the Psalms. Uh, David speaks of the blessed one to whom God... Um, um, Imputes righteousness, and that uh, Psalm 32, blessed are he, blessed are, are they whose sins are forgiven. Uh, blessed is the one to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And, and so he goes back to Adam here, and that's pivotal. That's pivotal, because God has dealt with the human race in Adam and in Christ. Those are the two representative men, 
and we are those who possess representative sin or representative righteousness in terms of the one who is our head, the one who is um, the one whom we are in, whom we are in living union with. And just as we were once in Adam, in that condition where through him sin entered into the world, death passed unto all men, and that all have sinned, and death reigned, death reigned. And now a free gift has come through the obedience of the one. As Adam disobeyed and cast the world into misery, into sin, into, into, um, into death, into judgment, into condemnation, so now Christ has come, and through his act of obedience, the many are made righteous. And so Jesus has transformed the world in bringing in a new creation. He is the head of a new creation. Just as Adam was the head of an old creation that is characterized by sin and death and sin that leads to condemnation and death, so Jesus, in his obedience, leads many to God, to life. That's what it means to have life. It means we can draw near to the source of life, to the living and the true God. We can live in righteousness through the righteousness he provides to us and through the righteousness he exemplifies for us. Again, he's the living Lord who himself was obedient unto death, the death of the cross. And he lives to make intercession for us. He lives to enable us to be those who follow him. He's the Hebrews 2 says, the pioneer of our salvation. He leads the way, and we follow him. You know, we don't make a we don't make a chasm of distinction between believing in Jesus and following Jesus. Believing in Jesus leads us to follow Jesus. There's no such thing as um, as um, believing in Jesus that's not also tied to the following of Jesus. And so we're called to follow him. And that leads us into the realm of obedience. And when you really think about it, Paul goes back to Adam, but then he says death reigned over all who Eden hadn't sinned in the likeness of Adam's sin. And he's a type of the one to come, that is Jesus, but sin reigned even when there was no law. So it seems to me like Paul is pointing to the fact that from Adam all the way to Moses, you have the reigning of sin. And where's that really so uh, carefully marked out for us in the Old Testament? Well, it's in those early chapters of Genesis, where even though people lived these great extents of lives, they died. And death meant separation. Again, eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, dying you will die, God says. And that seems to indicate, though it means you will certainly die, it's, it's an emphasis, that death is going to be what you receive. Yet physical death was not instantaneous, it was like 900 years later. But yet death reigned. Because death meant, means not only the separation of the spirit from the body, and we're going to see that in the uh, account of Jesus' crucifixion, as he bowed his head and he delivered over his spirit to God. That there is the deliverance of the spirit to God. And, and that's death. His death went into the Joseph of Arimathea's new tomb. That's where the body went. The body went into the new tomb. The spirit went to God. So you have the distinction, but the death upon earth was a living death. It was a death in trespasses and sins. It was a death of separation from the source of life. That's the whole picture in the book of Genesis. They're continually moving east. They're moving away from the Lord who is in Eden. And uh, death reigned throughout that whole period, even before the law came. And so 
what Christ has done is he's brought in a new creation where death no longer reigns. Life reigns. And that doesn't just mean what happens to us when we die. It means the way we live. That we're called to live in, as he's going to go on to say in chapter 6, in newness of life. There is this newness of life that the gospel brings. There is this new creation life that the gospel brings. And it brings it in in Jesus. And and the thing that this union with Jesus, uh, though he says it here, that we've been joined to him in terms of uh, what what we possess in him, um, um, or through him, that if because of the one man's death, uh, trespass, death reigned through the one man, so much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign through the one man, Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean just reign when we get to glory. It means that we reign over our passions. We reign over our sin. We, sin no longer has dominion over us, is what chapter 6 says. We reign as part of the new creation of God. Um, we live because we are attached by faith to the one who reigns. He reigns at the right hand of the majesty on high. And by his grace, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's chapter 8. But you see, all these thoughts are really present in phrases like um, like uh, the, reigning, the reign of life, that the free gift of righteousness reigns in life um, through the one man um, Jesus Christ. But it's not just Jesus coming into the world. It's not just Jesus presenting himself to the world. It's not just Jesus come to teach the world. It's Jesus come to die and rise again. And so in chapter 6, Paul's going to connect this relationship we have to Jesus as the head, as the one who brings in this new humanity to the way that new humanity comes in. It's not just by instruction. And it's not just by example. That Jesus sets us a wonderful example. It's by his dying and rising from the dead. And he raises the question in chapter 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? What's the conclusion to be brought to us? We have this new reign of life. We have grace reigning through righteousness leading to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have the much more. The abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. We have many trespasses. They're now covered over by the grace of this one man, Jesus. Well, what should we say to this then? And this may be going back to chapter 3 where Paul said there were some who said let us do good that evil might um, I'm sorry, let us do evil that good might come. Uh, There were people who thought maybe the gospel was some sort of a libertarian system of thought in which well, because Jesus did all this for us it doesn't matter what we do it doesn't matter how we live we can do uh, evil that good may come. And uh, that's no big deal in the eyes of God. We have a God who just doesn't really have a moral sense any longer. Doesn't really have a sense of uh, what right and wrong is. Christians don't really have to be concerned about law because we're not saved by the law. And so law has nothing to say to us at all. So live lawlessly. Live sinfully. Live disobediently. Live, live, live like the devil if you choose. 
And Paul says, is that the conclusion that this free grace of the gospel brings? That this grace reigning? It reigns through righteousness. How could this be? But the argument is set out. Uh, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul says, by no means. Let's, let's rule that one out of court. That has no place in any um, system of Christian thinking that we can, should continue in sin to magnify God's grace. You know, you have a certain measure of sin and the grace of God's covered it. So you can then say, well, okay, that's great grace. But let's make grace even greater by sinning all the more so that sin becomes greater. So the grace will become greater still. So where grace abounds, where sin abounds, grace will superabound over an increasing measure of sin that we commit. No, that's not it. That's simply not it. He says, God forbid, may it never be. It's the strongest denial that could possibly be given in the Greek language. And, and, and Paul's reasoning is, again, is the fact that this is this matter that what we have in Christ. We have this union with the Son of God. We have this union with this one who's come to bring in a new creation. And that's made all the difference in the world. And it's depicted in our baptism. He says, do you not know that all of us and that's just not the Jewish folks, it's the Gentile folks as well. It's not just the Gentile folks, so they need baptism, but we Jews are, you know, we don't need cleansing at all, so we don't have to be baptized. No, this baptismal ordinance is for all of you, all of you. How can we all? Who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, which was every saint in Rome, Every member of the church was a baptized Christian. That means all of you who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. And we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There's a couple of things to say about baptism. We knew it took place at the Jordan River. And it was at the Jordan River, at least John's baptism took place at the Jordan, and Jesus was baptized in the Jordan. And the first New Testament baptisms we read about were in the Jordan. Um, other places are mentioned as well. But that was the place of the crossing over from um, the Transjordan into the land of promise. And in so doing, it kind of depicted another uh, crossing of a, of a sea, because again it was a river that when the days of Joshua remember the priest stood in the river and the river did a, a, a Red Sea bit or a Sea of Reeds bit did the same thing of this crossing um, out of Egypt where God caused the sea to um, to stop flowing and there was a, a, a wall of water dry land that the people passed through same thing happened at the Jordan and there is a question, should baptism be connected to the whole matter of the Exodus in that they pass through the water? And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 uses baptismal language to describe that crossing of the sea. i got some place I'm going here, so just bear with me just a minute. So again, the fact that it took place originally, John the Baptist in Jordan, Jesus being baptized in Jordan, Jordan having... Uh, the counterpart to the passing out of Egypt uh, through the sea. And Paul's saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, 
and passed through the sea and were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So in the Exodus, there was this baptism into Moses. And part of what baptism means is it's it's a matter of identity. It's a matter of union. So that we who have union with Christ as the second Adam, we who have union with Jesus, the head of a new creation, um, find that, that, that relationship to be typified in a baptismal ordinance where we confess Christ. That's why we believe in confessor's baptism. That we are identified with Jesus just as Israel became identified with Moses at the Red Sea. But they passed through the sea. This is the Jews went through the Jordan, and John baptized in the Jordan, and Jesus was baptized in the Jordan. And they ate of the same spiritual food and drank of the same spiritual drink. And again, this is in the context where he's going to talk about communion later on. So it almost seems as though he's saying that there are these ordinances that Israel had that really typifies realities that we now possess in Jesus. Just as there was a baptism of Israel at the sea unto Moses, there's a baptism in the new covenant of believers unto Christ. And just as there was, is, um, was a, a drinking of spiritual drink and spiritual food, the manna that came from, the, from heaven, the um, water that came from the rocks, so there is this provision for us in the body and blood of Christ of, of drink that's drink indeed and f- food that's food indeed and uh, drink that's drink indeed. And he goes on to say, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So in all these things, Jesus is central. And that's the point that he's getting at, is that uh, you have these uh, Christian precursors back in the Old Testament. These kind of anticipations of the things that the Christian gospel will bring. That Christ was present there. And... uh, he was providing for them and he was leading them. And the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that led them. It's Jesus leading them. It's Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the, the God whose Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being present in the midst of Israel in that exodus, in that redemption from Egyptian bondage. And so when we come to New Covenant redemption... It's not the circumcision of the body that becomes the sign of Christian discipleship. Again, if that was true, then you can only emphasize men and not women. They're kind of excluded from the picture. They can't get the sign, as the Israelites did in the Old Testament. And of course, circumcision pointed to the inner reality of the circumcision of the heart. But there is this picture of redemption. There is this picture of being led out from bondage into freedom through water that is implied in the baptismal ordinance, that we have received new covenant redemption through Christ in our union with Jesus, just as Israel found redemption through their union with Moses at the Red Sea. We find union with Jesus expressed to us in the baptismal ordinance. And the reason I'm going there, that there are these exodus undertones or... You know, anticipations, uh, the sense of, well, Christian things that were there in the Old Testament, is that Paul's going to lead on into the latter part of the chapter with this whole question of being made free from sin. Freedom is the end of all this. Liberation is the end of all this. The slaves that were captives are no longer slaves. He's going to go on to that whole picture of servitude that has been ended so again, it's kind of like Exodus pictures, isn't it? Would you, would you agree with me? 
that if, if you're talking about water, then you're talking about baptism, and you're talking about all these associations that other texts have with uh, Egyptian deliverance, uh, Jesus, who comes as the new Adam, as the author of a new creation, achieves that new creation through a new exodus, which of course the prophets anticipated would come, that God was going to bring a new exodus. And Jesus comes and brings a new exodus, a new deliverance, a new passing through the sea, a new passing of the slaves from servitude to freedom. And baptism is the picture of, of that. It pictures a lot more, but it is something of a picture of that as well. And it's a picture of that in that it depicts our union with Jesus in death and resurrection. Because this new creation comes through, again, not just through Jesus coming as a teacher or an example, um, but as one who dies and rises from the dead. And so we who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, and we are identified now with the name of Christ Jesus, Paul says we were baptized into his death. And the only way I think you can ever conceptualize being baptized into a death is if you uphold what we do believe is the Christian understanding of the ordinance of baptism, which is immersion in water. You can't get death out of sprinkling. You really can't. I mean, I went out there yesterday. I was waiting for the yard, but I didn't die. I didn't come close to dying. Now, if you take my body and my head and put it into the pedals that are out there, maybe, maybe I have a good chance of dying. Not just falling into the puddles, but laying in the puddles. I could readily die. So it would have to be a little bit more water than sprinkling to picture a dying or a death. And again, death was uh, something that, uh, again, there's not a book ever written on the book of great, greatest Hebrew mariners. <laughs> I say that as someone who grew up in a Jewish family. I mean, we liked the water, but you don't go too far into it. It's, it's, um, um, there aren't the tales of the great uh, Jewish pirates and the great Jewish mariners and seafarers. Um, no, we, we tendency was to be landlubbers because, look, we got the flood in our history. We got, we got, we got Jonah in our history. <laughs> Even Paul getting shipwrecked. That's a Christian story, but you see the point. The point is um, you can die in water. The, the, the deluge of the flood destroyed the world. Immersion in water is something you need to be saved from. You need to be pulled out of the water. And God does effect a rescue. Because this baptism is a baptism into union with the dying Jesus, the Jesus who died for us, and death is what we deserved, and he died representatively, he died substitutionarily, he died for not his own sins, but for the sins of others. So in a real sense, when we're baptized into death, it's the recognition that the Jesus who died for us, died for us. We deserve to be on the cross. We deserve to perish for our sins, but our substitute died in our place, and our substitute died in our place not um, um, in a death that eventuates in a rescue. It eventuates in a saving. We're saved from death. We're saved from drowning. We're saved from perishing. 
because we who are baptized into his death were baptized into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father we too are raised from the dead we too now walk in newness of life is at the end of verse 4 so we were baptized into Christ we were buried with him in, in baptism and we were raised with him in newness of life that's the nature of the union the nature of the union is union with Jesus in his life but a life that led, that led to the rescue through crucifixion and resurrection that's the basis of our redemption that's how we were brought out of bondage that's how we're brought out of slavery that's how we're brought out of um, the condition of the of the of the of the old of the old creation of Adam that's how we're brought out of condemnation and death through the death and resurrection of Jesus this is the it's his, it's his obedience unto death, the death of the cross, and his subsequent resurrection that brings a new creation about, that brings a new redemption about. There's a new creation, there's a new exodus, and uh, baptism re- points to all that. It's, it's, it's very full in its symbolism. But the point is the slaves now are free. Those under death now have life. And so because of our union with Jesus this union through his obedience that leads to justification and life, that obedience that led him to the cross to die and to rise, it brings freedom and liberation from the old and it brings us into the orbit of the new, the new life, the new creation, raised from the dead by the glory of the Father to walk in newness of life. And then then remember the the much more back in chapter 5 where Paul says... um, if we've been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved through his life? I mean, if the blood of the dying man had the power to justify us, how about the living Lord? What is he able to do? Much more! We shall be saved from the wrath of God. If we were, when we were enemies, we were, verse 10, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Now, much more! Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? If his death did that for us, what about his life as the living Lord? Consider it. Much more then. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we've received this reconciliation. And we've received this reconciliation through his dying and his rising. Through his death and through his life. And so if we've been united with him, back to 6 in verse 5, if we've been united with him in a death like his, in the picture of baptism, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. See where Paul's going with this. Is that we can't think we live and walk and have our being in a world that's under the sentence of death. It's under the conditions of death. It's under the conditions of being separated from the source of life. Where the conditions of the old world in Adam was a condition where no sooner does Adam sin, what does he do? He blames his wife. There's discord in the home. There's fighting and feuding and recriminations and blame shifting going on. Right in the little episode you see in the garden. 
And then you see a brother kill his brother. The very next chapter. You have murder. You have the death of a brother. Fratricide is the name they give to that. Killing a brother. And then you have seven generations later, a guy named Lamech, he's boasting, he's, he's, done a, he's done a cane plus one, he's killed two men. And he's singing a song about it. The only thing that was important in that world is, could you do it? Did you have the power? It was, it was a, world, a, a world that a couple generations later it gets destroyed through the flood. Why? Because of the violence that was in the earth. Whatever the conditions were in the world before the Genesis flood, you didn't want to live there. You didn't want to live there. So God says you can't live here because he brings a flood on the earth. But that's death. That's living death. That's what living death involves. That's living in a world where the life of God is not present. And everyone does what's right in his own eyes. But now we're not in Adam any longer. We're not in the old world any longer. We're not in Egypt any longer. We're not under bondage and slavery any longer. Christ has come and a new creation has come and a new exodus has come and now we're liberated. We're freed. And we're free to do what? We're free to live. In a way that life was designed for us. To live with God. To live in love. To live in justice, to live in peace, to live in mercy, to live in compassion, to live in caring, to live in serving, to live in relationships with God and others that reflect the power of this new creation, walking in newness of life. You see why this letter is not theoretical, folks. It's practical. It's telling the Christians at Rome how they are to live as Christians in the light of the gospel. How they're not to live in pride. How they're not to live in self-seeking. How they're not to be putting those Gentile dogs who probably don't have any rights to be in the church but will tolerate them anyway. We'll put them in their place as second-class citizens or, or, the, or the Gentiles pulling the switch on the Jews. Saying, well, look at them. That's the nation that killed the Lord anyway. And, you know, you know by the way, they think they're so haughty and, you know, their, their circumcision means nothing and you know, take out the guns and start shooting take out all the spiritual arrows and start shooting start diminishing one another start looking to crush one another instead of to serve one another tear, tear one another down rather than build one another up this is a practical letter folks also look at your baptism and what it what it points to it points to a liberation it points to that you're no longer the servants of sin you're no longer the slaves of sin you've been raised with Christ and you've been raised in newness of life Paul says in verse 6 we know this is part of what we know and again, what Paul's doing in this letter, he's reminding people of what they know. So often it's not a question of what you know, it's a question just of what you, what you live in, how you live, in the light of what you know. 
You know, it's not that you can affirm Christian values in the abstract. It's that you live them in your life. That you carry them out in your life. It's not just you favor them when you go to the ballot box. It's how you live them out in your life. It's not that you favor them for other people, but that you live them out in your life. That you yourself have embraced those Christian values and you're living in their light. And Paul says, our old self, we know this, we know this, our old self, the old man, the old Adam. That's what he's saying, the old Adam. It's the old man. Adam means man. That old Adam, that old man, that old man, that old Adam was crucified with him. We were joined with him in a death like his. Our old man was crucified with him. We deserve to be on that cross where our sins were purged, where Jesus stood for us and represented us. It was a substitute for us. And the purging of our sins is the destruction of the old self. It's the destruction of what we were. That we might not be that any longer, but that we might be new men and women in Christ. Our old man, our old Adam was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now, just what this body of sin is, it may just be the sins that take their origin in the body. I mean, we carry out our sinful practices in the body, right? It's with our body, it's with our eyes, it's with our hands, it's with our feet, it's with our members. As you go and talk about the bodily members in the end of chapter 6, the bodily members that were the servants of sin, that whole body of sin, that whole complex of desires and passions that you know, led us down to give our bodies to these pursuits. Paul says that body of sin, and the ESV says, brought to nothing. It might come to nothing. Yeah, that's probably right. Something like that. It, it might be rendered unable to fulfill its own intents and desires. It, 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 it's rendered inoperative. It, can, it can't function the way it used to function. You can't live like you formerly lived. And he says this whole matter of that body of sin being destroyed or brought to nothing is that we might no longer be captives in Egypt. That we might no longer be enslaved. Again, this is a new exodus. This is a new redemption. This is a new deliverance. We're delivered from our sins. We're no longer in idolatrous Egypt, worshiping and serving the gods of the Egyptians, learning the practices of the Egyptians. We're led out by God to be his worshipers. We're led out by Christ to worship him. That we might no longer be sin slaves. He says, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, sometimes that's a comfort to us. One day I'll be dead and I won't be able to sin any longer. (laughs) I kind of have that uh, versified in uh, Robert Murray McShane's song about about debtors being debtors. When he said, when I stand... um, uh, When I stand before the throne, dressed in beauty, not my own. When I see you as thou art, love thee with unsinning heart. You can't sin in, in heaven. In, in glory, you become like the one um, who is 
who glorifies us. We become fully conformed to Jesus. Um, and, and that's one of the benefits of, of glory. You, you won't be able to sin. Once you die, you can't do any more harm. Once you die, you can't, you can't bring any more misery to anybody else. And once you die, if you're in Christ, you're going to be perfectly glorified in his presence. So, um, the one who has died has been set freed from sin. And now he argues from that point, that that's that truth, if we have died with Christ. If our death is not the actual physical death, but it's a death in union with the Christ who died for us. Um, he says, we know that. Again, back to the knowledge. We know these things. These are things we should have constantly before our eyes. These are the things we should constantly be remembering. We know that Christ being raised from the dead, he'll never die again. He's died once for all. Brings us a little bit into our morning study and the words it has finished and how that's been historically understood. But Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death has no longer dominion over him. Death can't touch Jesus and there's no longer any separation between him and the Father in terms of his glorified human nature. He's in, he's in, he's in glory. He's in the presence of God. There's the full-orbed communion and love and, and bliss that characterizes the relationship of the triune God and the glorified humanity of Jesus within the, the life of the Trinity. He's raised from the dead. He'll never die again. Death has no longer dominion over him. <clears throat> the death that he died, he died to sin. Again, once for all. Once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. And you see, you're in union with that crucified Jesus through whom death has no dominion and who lives in the presence of God. And so therefore, you must consider yourselves. You must think of yourself, not as you are in yourself, but as you are in Jesus. As you are in your glorified head. And that means you consider yourself dead to sin. Sin has nothing to say to me. Sin has nothing to to dominate me, to control me. Sin's not my Lord. I don't have to obey sin. I've been freed from sin's dominion. And the converse of being dead to sin is you're alive to God. You're alive to God. You have access to the living God. You're, you, you know, not only access to the living God, it's interesting, you know, here in Romans it says, you know, we died with Christ, we've been raised with Christ, but in Ephesians, in the prison, prison letters, Paul goes a step further. It's not just dying and rising with Christ, it's being seated with him in heavenly places, far above all, no, he's, he's far above all rule, authority, and power in chapter 1. We've been seated with him in heavenly places, and he is far above all rule and power and authority in every name that's named. And there's a sense in which that in our union with him is the glorified Son of God. Not only the crucified and risen Son of God, the glorified Son of God. We have union with him. We have communion with him. We have access to him. We have the power of the age to come at work in us through the power of the risen and glorified Jesus. That's life, folks. That's, that's the converse of death. That's the exact opposite of what death brings. Death brought distance from God, separation from God, no access to God, no love for God, no desire for God, no communion with God. Life brings the very opposite. 
brings us into the presence of God. And it brings God's presence near to us through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. The triune God now inundates our life with his own presence, his own nearness. And so you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And not in yourself, but in him, in your union with him as the crucified, risen, and glorified Son of God. You're joined to him in a living bond of faith. And then he goes on, not just to what you need to be considering, but what you need not to be doing. Not only don't, you need to be considering yourself dead to sin, you need to know these things, but now you need to have that effect you're doing. Not just you're knowing and you're considering, but you're doing. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So uh, the things that are settled in the life of the mind, the things we know, the things we believe, the things we have certainty of, all rooted in the gospel of Jesus and the blessings of the gospel that come to us in the Lord Jesus. Paul's saying this needs to seep down into the, the way you live. It needs not just to be in the realm of conjecture, the realm of high floating thoughts. you got great notions about what the gospel does and what the gospel brings. But let's make that practical. Let's bring that down to the very way you either obey or not obey sinful passions. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Again, the body that desires things, the body that says, feed me, feed me, feed me, feed me, whatever it is that I want. Now, Lord, just take a step back and say, no, every now and again, this is not in my best interest to be pursuing this or doing this, so I don't have to obey what sin wants for me. Don't obey your sinful passions. Do not present your members. This is really getting really practical, right down to the way you, you live your life in terms of your bodily members. Do not present your members. Again, this body of sin that uh, brings us to carry out sin in our mortal bodies and the things that we do and the things our hands do and our feet do and our eyes do and our ears do and our tongues do. All the things where we carry out sinful practices in our body. He says, do not present your members to sin. Sin says, give me your members. And we say, no, no, I'm not going to present my members to sin. But he says, present yourselves to God. Present your members to God. Again, he's going to speak about that in um, chapter 12. Present your bodies, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God which is your spiritual service. He's just reiterating what he's telling them here. Don't present the members of your body to sin. Present the members of your body um, as instruments of righteousness. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. I'm not in death any longer. I don't live in death. I don't dwell in death. And don't just think of death as a cessation of bodily life. Think of death as separation from God. You're not distant from God. You don't have no access to God. You're not cut off from God. God's not indifferent to you. God's not uncaring about you. God loves you. God cares for you. God's drawn near to you in the gospel. He's confirmed your love to you and that Christ died for you. He's given his spirit to you that the love of God would be shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit that's been given to you. That's life. That's what life is. 
by Christian definition. It's living in the light of life, in the source of the God of life. You've been brought from death to life. And hence, the members of your body are to be presented to God. I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. The hands don't belong to me anymore. The hands are to serve the Lord, to serve his people, to serve truth, to serve righteousness, to serve mercy and kindness and love. It's, 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 it's a whole new ballgame. This we're not in Adam any longer. We're in, we're in Jesus. We're not under slavery any longer. We're in freedom. There's a new creation. There's a new exodus. There's new realities that come to be brought to bear upon our lives as the people of God. And then he says, for sin will have no dominion over you. Don't think, well, okay, up to this point, I'll go along with you, Paul, but you know, sin's a powerful thing. And uh, though for a brief time, especially when I go to church and attend the prayer meetings and I'm trying to do all the right things, so it seems like I don't have a desire for sin, but it's right around the corner. It's it's going to it's crouching. It's looking to have dominion over over. Remember what God said to Cain when? Uh, uh, let's look at it. The words aren't coming to me, but the idea is in Genesis four about sin crouching and would have and would rule you, would have dominion over you. This may be where Paul is is taking this thought from is that sin is looking to pass. Sin is looking to dominate. Sin is looking to take over. Sin is looking to destroy. He says in the words of verse um, 6, this is chapter 4 of Genesis, Genesis 4 and verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why why are you you angry and why is your face fallen? Why are you despondent? Why are you depressed? Why are you despairing? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. You go in your house sometimes and look behind the door to see if anybody's hiding. I think when I start to kill a mockingbird and uh, Bo, Bo Ridley, Bo, was that his name? Robert De Niro played him. He had a brief scene. He, he saved... Anybody else watch To Kill the Mockingbird? <laughs> and Boo Radley, Boo Radley, that was what his name was. Boo Radley was behind the door. <laughs> so I walk into doors, into rooms, and I look behind doors just to make sure Boo Radley isn't there. Made an impression upon me when I was a kid. But... Um, Sin could be crouching behind a door, just like a thief is crouching behind the door, looking to overtake you, looking to overwhelm you, looking to uh, steal your goods. Well, sin is looking to do the very same thing. That's what the picture seems to be. Its desire is for you, but you must rule it. It's looking to rule you, but you must rule it. And we're given the tools in the gospel. We're given the Holy Spirit. We're given Christ. In communion and union with him, we're given Christ's example of obedience. We're given all these biblical resources, all these spiritual powers to to live under the power of God's grace. 
And so Paul says, for sin will have no dominion over you. It, it wants to have dominion over you, but doesn't have to have dominion over you. And you should live in fear, it's going to have dominion over me. You're not under the law, he says, you're under grace. Now, you don't think when Paul says you're not under the law, that you're under grace, that the argument is, well, regardless of how you sin, it doesn't count because you're not under the law. No, he's not saying that. He's saying the law can never make you obedient. The law can never help you please God. This is what the law does, is the law defines sin. It doesn't conquer sin. The law tells you what not to do. It can't help you do it. You know, if you want to go out and steal, and I'm standing there saying, the law says, Don't, do not steal. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not st-. I can say that commandment to you ten times a day. And if you have a heart that wants to steal, you're going to go and steal. And there's nothing in that commandment that's going to make you obey it. It's just going to tell you you shouldn't do it. So the law is prescriptive. It's, it doesn't have power to tell you how to live. Or it doesn't give you the power to live in the way you should. But grace operates in a different way. Grace brings you into life. It brings you into liberty. It brings you into the orbit of God's love. It brings you into the blessings of the gospel. Where there is power that is given to the believer. That's what Paul prays in the Ephesian letter. That they would know the power that they possess. The power that's likened unto the power that raised Christ from the dead. He prays that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. That they may know what is the greatness of the power that works in them. That's our problem. We don't know the greatness of that power. We don't think about it. All we do is we think we're weak. We've lived our lives saying we're weak. We've lived our lives thinking we're weak. We're living our lives um, really talking ourselves into the fact that uh, well, we're miserable sinners. We'll be miserable sinners to the, way, to the day that we die. And so hang our head in misery and have no joy. And... Um, you know, I'm not totally against the notion of the miserable sinner, but I also know there's a blessed saint that <laughs> is also a part of the picture. I think it's a question of what you see is the whole of the picture. That's it, it, that's not the, all there is to see. You know, the miserable sinner part is not all that there is to see. And if that's all that you see, you're not seeing well. You're not seeing properly. You're not seeing the whole picture. Because the grace of the gospel comes to empower us to live godly lives in Christ Jesus. We're unto God's grace. That's reality, folks. The grace of God has met us in the gospel. Think of Paul's words in um, the Titus letter. He says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has come to all men, teaching us. Ah, here's something that grace does. It teaches us. Grace teaches us. That denying ungodliness and worldly lust, saying no to ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present evil age. Grace does something. Well, well, grace teaches. But that's not all that grace does. Grace equips and grace empowers. Grace enables. Grace brings us into the orbit of newness of life. It does liberate us. Now, it doesn't make us without uh, responsible activity that we engage in. But as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, he is at work in us, both to will and to work for his own good, good pleasure. So we're not alone in the battle. We're not just wrestling through a, a giant opponent without someone greater than that opponent um, 
fighting our, our, our battle for us and ultimately binding the strong man that we might live um, under, no longer under his great power. And Paul's going to go on to further speak about our relationship to law and grace in the remainder of chapter 6 and then into chapter 7. And uh, we're going to have to see we, we can't despise law, but we can't overestimate its, its ability. It's the grace, the grace, the grace. The law can never save. The law can never sanctify. You know, the law should not be the, the major theme of uh, teaching in the church. It's, 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 it's a point of teaching, but uh, it's a point of teaching that always comes within the framework of the gospel. Because whatever kind of law keeper you think Christians should be, it has to be gospel law keepers. It has to be law keepers who keep the law within the framework of gospel truth and gospel reality and gospel power so that the law is never to be extracted from the gospel. It's one of the great things, themes of the Reformation, the whole business of law and gospel and how it all works together. Well, it works together, clearly, at least in my estimation, where the gospel is the prism through which every aspect of law is to be considered and every aspect of law is to be obeyed. It's through the power and ability that the gospel confers. And the law in and of itself is powerless to do anything to help us. We have a mighty Savior. And through Him, we can live lives that please God. Now may the Lord bless His Word and help us to think through these things and give us understanding in them. Let's commit our thoughts to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for the realities that the gospel brings We're thankful for the blessings that Jesus has gained for us through his substitutionary obedience, through his um, work of atonement and resurrection, his work of ascension and priestly power at your right hand. Uh, We're thankful that this ushers in for all who believe in him a new creation, a new reality not under death, not under condemnation, but in life, in righteousness, in justification, in the orbit of fellowship and communion with the God of heaven and earth. We're thankful that we're not left in servitude to our sins, that we're not bound to the powers of this present evil age, but that we have been liberated by the power of the gospel as well. And we're thankful that by the power of the risen and ascended Christ that we can do all things through him who strengthens us. So, Lord, bless your word. Help us to think upon these things to achieve a greater measure of clarity and understanding as to how the gospel uh, is to conf- is, it does operate and does confer uh, the riches of your blessings and kindness to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray you'd hear us and answer our prayers as we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen.